electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Right now in fast, while the major averages posted big gains today and the banks are bouncing back, one of our traders says there are new signs of stress in the system coming from the credit markets. The details and the ripple effect straight ahead. Plus, Elon Musk sounding the alarm on China, saying in CNBC's exclusive interview that Beijing's rising tensions with Taiwan should be a concern for everyone. Is he right? We'll debate that. And later, building a mystery. Mortgage rates keep climbing, but so do the builders. We'll go inside wins winning hand today and then the monster options action for Bausch Health. I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money. We're live at the Nasdaq market site on the desk tonight. Karen Feinerman, Michael Kantopoulos, Dan Nathan, and Julie Beal. We begin with the markets posting strong gains. The money center and regional banks leading the charge. Semis and travel stocks also marching higher. While the equity markets are cheering, the credit markets are starting to sing a different tune. Small private companies are now defaulting at an alarming rate, according to new reports from UBS. And repeat bankruptcies. Companies that have defaulted once and are now defaulting for a second time. They're also on the rise reaching their highest level since 2009 and near all-time highs. Add in that, lending standards are nearing historic levels of tightness, and one of our traders fears trouble could be right around the corner. Michael, this is your expertise, and you say this is a red flag. Sounds pretty bad, doesn't it? It does. (laughs) Uh, It it is a red flag. I mean, let me start with what I think the the big issue in markets are, are today. Like, everybody either wants to think we're in recession or that recession's never going to happen. And we're not in recession currently. Right, but it clearly is the beginnings of a slowdown. And we're seeing that the 500 plus basis points of hikes that the Fed has you know, basically uh, 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 enacted here is having an effect in the market. You're seeing uh, lending conditions tighten. That's what's supposed to happen. That's why the Fed tightens. It's to bring down lending conditions. And as lending conditions tighten, spreads widen, CapEx slows, what happens? Companies start to default. The weakest links always go first. And that's what we're seeing. We're seeing the weakest links go first. Yeah. Karen, you sort of were, have been of this belief for some time, and we're starting to see the cracks now. Right. Well, so I've been thinking that the high yield spread, that the this credit spread would widen. And so I'm short HYG as kind of a hedge to many things. But um, I have been surprised with how little it has actually worked. And so, you know, as Michael said, we're starting to see the worst ones. I feel like if your business is doing okay, even if your balance sheet isn't great, there's almost always a way out. There's a way to extend, there's a way to issue equity, something. For some of the ones, I don't know if we talked about specific names, some of the ones you're talking about, it, it's, not, it, it's a business problem and a balance sheet problem. And so um, I would have thought we've seen more of it, but we haven't. And I don't know with rates maybe calming down a little or certainly the idea that the end of hiking is near. Maybe maybe some will be able to roll over debt that I wasn't expecting they would be able to. Well, rem- remember, Karen, I mean, we had seven bankruptcies this weekend alone. But they were right? all tiny companies. They were tiny companies. Until but- we see a really big bankruptcy. 
Well, that's yeah. how it starts, okay. though, right? I mean, this As is a thing. tiny bankruptcy. Well, certainly, yes. No, pro- no, no small companies tend to lead large companies, right? In, in any sort of environment, and I think that's what we're starting to see. I mean, seven bankruptcies in 48 hours is, is nothing to sneeze at when you haven't had any bankruptcies really for the last year, and so that's very concerning to me. And then you enter into a situation where all of these hikes start to take effect, and you have the regional banks who are pulling back on lending even more. And what does that mean for credit? I just don't think it means good things. Yeah, and I just say through the lens of the, the stock market, and we've been talking about small caps, right? So the, they have the issue with the highest cost of capital or access to, to, you know, to, to credit right here. And so we're seeing that reflected and, you know, unchanged on the year of the Russell 2000. But, you know, it's also, look, look at SPAC land. I mean, like, like, look at that. That was an outgrowth of just kind of the zero interest rate environment here. How many SPACs have we seen go from 10 basically to zero? Uh, you know, it, there's dozens, if not hundreds of those. And I think that that's not the same thing that we're not talking about, but a lot of those are going to be delisted. And a lot of investors, when they see a stock that's delisted, they think of it's going away. It's like a bankruptcy. There will be reorganizations. And then the other thing, before all of this happened with uh, Silicon Valley Bank, there were lots of very prominent VCs calling for mass extinction events in the private tech market to start this year, well before there were any issues with Silicon Valley Bank, because basically how these companies were created and how they got funded and, and what they were doing was not going to be sustainable. So we hear that expression, zombie companies were really kept alive in the zero interest rate environment. And that's what I think this all culminates into what you're talking about. It doesn't matter that there were seven small companies. It is going to be a trend. I think every company tries to hang on for as long as they can. But sooner or later, if we're going to have higher for longer and we're going to have tougher access to capital, it's just not going to work out great small or big companies. Yeah, Julie, small mid-cap is your, your neck of the woods, your area of expertise. Um, and, and that is exactly the area that will have a little bit more difficulty securing the financing. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. But to pick up on Dan's point, you know, the bankruptcies that we started to see were really in February and not even before Silicon Valley Bank was happening. And it is very much tied to what's happening in the VC community in terms of saying, hey, we want our businesses to be profitable. You know, for me as a small and mid cap investor, we really try to focus on businesses that have zero debt. And it's for exactly this reason. You need to have the level of cushion that allows your business to kind of power through any kind of recession. So I think having businesses that have good, durable earnings are great, but a pristine balance sheet, there's no price to pay for that. How long, is there like a typical period where you're starting to see sort of the canary in the coal mine and then it goes to full-blown sort of this is what it is? Yeah, it, it tends to be about six to 12 months. So, so you're in a range now where, you know, in the back half of this year into the first half of next year, you should start to see more and more stress. This year, th- this cycle is going to be a little bit different because so much of the uh, uh, lower quality debt out there was financed through the loan market, and the loan market has floating rate debt. And so companies had a choice many years ago, do I want to lock in very low interest rates for a long time, or do I want to issue floating rate debt? And what do they choose to do? And this is what led to the private credit boom. It was to issue floating rate debt, and now they're paying a lot more for that. So, Michael, are there anything that we should look in the private equity market? Are there, like, funds that are set up to kind of take advantage of this environment? And, and, and again, are there things that, like, investors should be looking for, you know, like certain activity, like whether they be funding, whether they be, you know, like, again, you know, we haven't seen a, a lot of huge down rounds in the, in the private um, tech market, but are there things that maybe in small cap land that we might see in the public markets with private equity companies? Well, I mean, listen, I think looking at um, the, pu- the publicly traded 
uh, private equity firms out there can be a kind of tip a little bit. So you probably want to stay pay attention to those, especially the ones that have big private credit and uh, private REIT exposure. All right, let's uh, get to retail now. Turn to Target. The retailer wrapping the day more than two percent uh, higher, despite warning consumers are getting cautious on spending. They also raised quite a few eyebrows when they said that theft related to organized crime totaled more than three quarters of a billion dollars in the last year. Walmart reports tomorrow morning. So. Are we going to see a similar message here, Karen? I mean, it was pretty good considering we were thinking that it wasn't going to be a great quarter for them because of all mm-hmm. the discretionary items and the lack of groceries that they have. Right. Uh, all things being considered, it wasn't terrible. They have had this persistent problem. They were sort of the first one last year to really have it kind of on a bigger scale. And then we saw it from a number of other retailers, although they seem to have the worst problem. Mm-hmm. And I can't help but think... They haven't quite fixed it, so maybe they'll continue to have the worst problem of of the group. But I thought it was decent. You know, they didn't, the guidance was a little softer than I would have liked, although it wasn't terrible. But they were talking about uh, March was difficult, which we expected, given what happened with the banking situation. April was a little better, okay, sort of. And May, they didn't give us a great feel on May. So I'm long target. I'm kind of surprised it held in as well as it did. When you piece together what we've heard so far from the retailers, I mean, you really get the picture of sort of a trade down going on uh, amongst the consumers, pairing back projects for Home Depot. Um, TGX saw increased store traffic, so maybe higher end consumers trading down, looking for bargains, Dan. Yeah, no, I know uh, you guys were talking about it on Monday's show. You know, we, we see the, the, the consumer savings data, and it's not going the right direction relative to consumer credit right now. And so, again, you know, we have unemployment at a 70 year low. That's the one piece of the puzzle that hasn't come in line with what the Fed would like to to have happen with this economy. And if it starts to tick up, I have to think that you're going to see that in the retailers. Some of the stuff that we've heard over the last couple quarters, even though they've gotten their inventories in line, we're going to start hearing more and more of that. And I think that could be like a little bit of the canary in the coal mine. I know we're going to be talking about in a recession, not in a recession. We're in a profits recession, no doubt about that right now. And I suspect as soon as we see unemployment start to tick up, it's going to be reflected in these retailers. And sometimes it's just perception, Julie, right? I mean, the consumers hearing all this talk about recession, they're going to pull in. They're going to be you know, battening down the hatches in case of a recession, regardless of whether or not there is one officially declared or not. I think that's very much what the Fed has in mind in terms of thinking about not just inflation that's actually happening, but the inflation that's being embedded into customers' behavior. And you see that at Target, right? You see people choosing non-discretionary items because they're concerned about higher prices going forward. You have a report out today that says 38% of people out there are struggling to pay their regular bills. It's starting to really hit them. What I think is interesting is I do think there are pockets within retail that are investable even in a recession. TJ is a great example of that. If you go to a TJ Maxx, you'll actually notice that Customers aren't just shopping on need, they're shopping as entertainment. And I think that holds true. You get a trade down customer and great traffic is the lifeblood of any retailer. So I think that's an interesting business to look at right now. All right. For more on retail, let's bring in Terry Lundgren. He's the former CEO of Macy's and Neiman Marcus, currently is the founder and CEO of TJL Advisors. Terry, welcome to the NASDAQ market site. Welcome to the show. Happy to be here. Thanks, Melissa. Um, how do you think the consumer is going to spend uh, on some, you know, some level to some degree during even tough times? So as we enter this sort of period of sort of unknowns, how do you think the consumer spends? How should we be thinking about the retail landscape? Yeah, you've got to look at it in, in uh, by income level. So so much of this conversation has been right is right on track as far as I'm concerned, and that is the lower household income consumer is buying needs, and and that's basically all that the paycheck is allowing at this point. So they're 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 rotating out of discretionary. That middle household income uh, consumer, that consumer is trading down. 
And so we're starting to see the benefits that will that will I think occur here in the in the months ahead and the quarters ahead for the off price. Even the, even the, some of the mid-tier department stores may benefit from the trade down uh, for them. It may be possible some of these going out of business, these bankruptcies may benefit those. Um, and then the high-end consumer, they're they still have they still have money. They're less affected, but. They're trading into experiences, and so the airlines are full, the airports are full, the car rentals are, you know, sold out, and, and you know, the concerts are sold out. So, so you know, all of this is going to is going to impact goods, and you know, we had a really nice uptick during uh, during the COVID period where the consumer started buying goods again. Um, and I think that's uh, that, that's shifting back to to services. And so I think it's going to be a challenging period here for many retailers in many categories over the next couple of quarters. You've been in retail your entire career, correct? Correct. You graduated from Arizona way back when. That's right. Don't even mention <laughs> Not too it. Long ago. Just a few <laughs> years ago. Yeah. Um, so you've navigated various periods in your experience when we're going through a period where there is a credit, you know, a credit tightening period to come. Um, we're in a period of tightening rates. We're a period of maybe a recession, maybe not. How do the consumers react? How, what have you found? Yeah, the, what, I, what I find is that c- the consumer takes in all this news, and almost all the news that gets reported is bad news. You know, we, we, t- we, we talked about earlier, I was uh, listening to the program, we're talking about store closings. And, and, you know, no one talks about store openings. But for the, for the last several years, there's been more stores opened than closed. Now, the big stores are closing, smaller stores are opening, but net-net, there's 800 more stores open this year than closed in uh, 2023. So what they're reading isn't that. They're reading all the bad news. And so that affects consumer confidence. And when consumers are feeling like there could be a recession around the corner, I might lose my job. My company might not perform well. They might start laying off. When they start thinking like that, they pull in their spending. So, Terry, you talked for a minute in the green room about the e-commerce evolution at at, uh, Macy's. So do you think that the sort of the push that the pandemic made on the e-commerce growth, has that plateaued? And what do you think is the long term sort of what's the right stable amount of sales that will be those e-commerce sales? Yeah, are less no, profitable? it's a good question. We've been tracking this and it was something that we thought might happen. And in fact, is playing out this way prior to, to uh, COVID 16, 17, 18, 19, the online penetration as a percent to sales was growing between 100 and 150 basis points in penetration to, to total sales each year. And that was consistent. And then all of a sudden COVID hits and we go from like 11.5% online uh, purchases to the total to 20, you know, because, because hey, stores were closed by the government and because that's, you know, no one was leaving home. So, so it spiked. This last report was now that it's back to 14.7%. And, I, and if you do the math, it's basically back to where we were. It's back to the mean. So I, 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 I forecast that it'll be 16% a year from now, and then it'll be 17 or 17.5%. And that, that will continue to, to grow, but at, at not the pace that we saw during COVID. So to answer your question, I think it's, it's peaked to, where, uh, to back to the mean. 
So we'll continue to see growth. And what that means is that it will affect uh, physical stores. And so getting that balance right of physical stores is really important. A lot of that has happened. Uh, um, even though there are new stores opening, they're mostly smaller formats or they're off price or they're, you know, uh, individual specialty stores, not the big, uh, big box uh, format stores. Last quick question. What is in the Terry Lundgren portfolio when it comes to retail stocks? Well, I happen to like, uh, first of all, I think Target did a good, did a good job. And you all, you all mentioned that and you, you, you uh, suggested that they, they did a pretty good job. I think the most important thing was they got their inventory in line. Their inventory yeah. was out of line uh, the last couple of quarters. They got their inventory. Now, I give them cre- credit for that. When you're doing that, however, it's hard to grow sales. Uh, so I, I, I think they, they put themselves in a good position. And I, and I actually like Walmart very much. You're going to hear from them tomorrow. I don't actually know what the numbers are, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if they, if they surprise a little bit on, on the positives upside because, you know, first of all, the 50, 55% of their business is in food, grocery, and uh, they are the largest you know, grocer in the, in the United States. And, and that obviously still is benefiting from inflation, and I think they'll, I think they'll, they'll perform well. Um, do you like Target and Walmart over Macy's in this environment? I love yeah. Macy's, and I will always love Macy's. It'll always, always be, uh, be the most important store in okay. Bloomingdale's, too, and Blue Mercury. That's also part of the portfolio. <laughs> <laughs> Terry, good to see you. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Terry Lundgren. How about you? <laughs> do I like Macy's? Yeah. Well, so something, you know, we often talk about is how smart the equity investors are versus the bond investors, rather, versus the equity investors. And that that's a tell that's a good tell to look at it here. This is an unusual one. I looked at the Macy's debt and looked at the Macy's equity and the Macy's debt is doing just fine. It's just fine. They're telling you there's not a problem here. And the Macy's equity is telling you, oh, my God. There's a huge problem. I think the disconnect's actually on the equity side. Some of these multiples, price to EBITDA, uh, I, I mean, four and a half, price to sales, you know, 0.4. I mean, these are some crazy low numbers, and the debt is telling you we're okay. Well, I obviously like the, uh, Karen, your, your comment about the, the deck side being right. <laughs> you know, listen, at, at the end of the day, I think there's a little bit of a disconnect oftentimes between how bond markets trade and equity markets trade because equity markets, to Dan's point earlier, are going to trade based on earnings, and we're in an earnings recession. And so I think maybe there's some uncertainty around how earnings are going to play out in the retailers and across really all sectors, right? But for someone like Macy's or other companies out there whose balance sheet is, is reasonably strong, you know, you, you sort of have limited maybe default risk, even if you have an earnings decline. Um, and so I think that sometimes is part of the reason why you get these divergences. But clearly, I always think that that's the debt's right. <laughs> and smarter. <laughs> and smarter. Coming up, we're watching some after hours movers, shares of Take-Two and Cisco on the move after reporting. The details from the quarters next, plus keep an eye on building. Home builders continuing to rally as demand doesn't seem to wane, but can the climb continue as rates keep rising and the U.S. heads towards a potential recession? More on that ahead. Uh, don't go anywhere. More Fast Money in two. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, 
Our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to Fast Money, a pair of movers after hours. Take two interactive surging following a revenue beat and upbeat guidance while Cisco dropping despite a top and bottom line beat. Both calls underway. Let's get to Steve Kovac with the latest on Take Two. Steve. Yeah, Mel, and those Take-Two shares were up as much as 11% earlier, but revenue beat and bullish commentary about the coming pipeline of games next year is what's driving the stock. Revenue was a beat, $1.39 billion versus $1.34 billion adjusted. And the outlook for the fiscal year was a little light of ex- expectations. That's just starting this quarter, up to $5.5 billion expected versus uh, uh, anticipated versus the $6 billion expected. But look, here's the really unusual move Mel, that's setting the stock higher. Very bullish commentary in this earnings release about next year, the company's fiscal 2025. CEO Strauss Zelnick giving outlook for 2025 on the earnings call, saying the releases next year will see a jump in growth after what he called several groundbreaking titles. Also predicting those new games will bring in over $8 billion in net bookings. Now, if you'll allow me to put on my nerd cap for a little bit, this screams to me the next Grand Theft Auto game. That is the biggest entertainment property ever. It did a billion dollars in sales when it came out about a decade ago and still continues to generate more and more sales for Take-Two. So reading in between the lines, Melissa, between this uh, bullish outlook for fiscal year 2025 and the fact that some of that footage from the game leaked uh, last year, it sounds like that GTA game is actually going to come pretty soon. This is just speculation. They wouldn't say on the call, but based on those revenue outlook numbers, that's what it says to me. Your eyes lit up, Steve. I know, right? Talking about the new release. Steve Kovac, thank you. Thanks. Um, Interesting the company gave guidance. It typically does not give guidance that far out, Julie, which speaks to me of the confidence that maybe the company does have about this pipeline. I see it a lot with businesses where they know they're going to have some hard sledding in the year ahead. And so they give you two and three year forecasts to get you excited. And, you know, for longer term investors like us, that makes sense. But I think in the near term, you're really having to look across a chasm that's that's pretty wide. But their pipeline looks to be very strong. I think it's you know 87 t- plus titles that they're talking about, and that's meaningful to their earnings growth. You know, I think what's going to be kind of critical to understand is is how the cash flow progresses in this business, and how they're able to manage through 2024. But it sounds like they're doing a very good job on their messaging from the stock reaction. I agree with Julie about the messaging. And I also think, you know, you said they don't normally do this. And I think of Strauss Zelnick as a CEO that underpromises and overdelivers. And I, so he must feel very confident. And I would expect well, that he's going to overdeliver. Except, except that okay. this quarter was really bad. I mean, <laughs> the, 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 the earnings the, were not that great. The, the, no, the earnings were bad. The guidance for 2024 are bad. The operating margins were bad. The gross margins they missed by like 4%. I mean, like, this is not a good quarter. And then you put that together with this. The, here's a quote. Our forecast reflects a challenging consumer backdrop, as well as an extension of the development timelines for several high profile. I mean, they're really pushing out all of the things that it trades at this well above market multiple, you know, into 2025. I mean, that's not the thing that I would be paying up 10% in the after market for. Let's get to Cisco here. Bertha Coombs here uh, to take us through the numbers. Bertha. Hey, Melissa. Cisco crediting higher pricing that the action that they took last year 
now starting to kick in, providing a beat on both the top and the bottom line, with revenues up 14% year over year, and stronger margins for its secure and agile networks division. Now, the company says due to improving supply constraints, they were able to cut down their backlog, though they'll end the year with double the normal levels. On the call, Chuck Robbins says lead times have now come down about 40% over the last two quarters in terms of orders, and user demand, he says, is driving growth. Web-scale customers, he says, are now implementing some of their prior tech investments now that they've gotten it. And he says they see growth opportunity as they enable hardware and software. And he said that they already see early design wins in AI infrastructure and predicts that they'll see some market share gains there. Still, Robbins said, though, they expect modest revenue growth in fiscal 2024. They will grow earnings at a higher rate for both the current quarter and fiscal 2024, improving gross margins, he says, and strong expense management are the reason for that. But he also admits that they'll continue stock buybacks at higher levels. That often helps on the bottom line as well, Melissa. All right. Bertha, thanks. Bertha Coombs. He mentioned AI, and the stock is down, Dan. What is going on? I, I, you know, it's interesting. You know, this stock sold off really hard, if you guys remember last month, in sympathy with a couple of those disappointing um, results um, by some of their competitors here. And so the fact that it's not up, I mean, they beat on the operating margin. They beat on the gross margin. I mean, it looked like a pretty decent quarter, especially with low um, expectations. Here's a stock. And, and, you know, like I was going to say this in the retail conversation, there's a lot of stocks that look really cheap, right? Even if you kind of can discount a tough slog over the next couple of quarters, this is kind of one of them. They said some of the things. Cheap in a good way or cheap in a bad way? No, well, I mean, they, like could, be, they, they, no, they could be value traps, right? Uh -huh. If we were to kind of find ourselves in a recession, we know that a lot of these companies are already expected to have earnings declines year over year for a couple quarters. That means that they are in an earnings recession. And I think the multiples reflect that right now. I don't think there's a lot of downside risk in, the, in a name like Cisco right here, unless you have a much deeper recession than a lot of folks think we're going to have. My question, Dan, would be, I mean, tech is cyclical. I think a lot of people forget that tech is cyclical because of what happened during the pandemic, right? During the pandemic, tech became defensive because of the uniqueness. And when you look at Cisco, when you look at a lot of these other companies and these sectors out there, I mean, they still are tech. And if you think that we're going to go into recession, unemployment's going to pick up, CapEx is going to decline. Yeah. What does that so mean? So here's the thing, and that's that's a really great question. That's why we have such smart debt guys exactly. on the desk here. <laughs> um, but no, if you look at 2019, this company earned about like three dollars and fifteen cents. You know what they earned in 2020? About three dollars and twenty cents. You know what they earned in 2021? Yeah. About three dollars and thirty cents. So when you think about the cyclicality of some of these businesses, here's a company that I, I think have kind of figured out how to smooth along across geographies, across government, across enterprise. You know that sort of telco, that sort of thing. So this is probably a bit more predictable and less cyclical, in my opinion. Julie, value trade or value trap when it comes to Cisco? What do you think? Well, I think I agree with Dan. I think this is kind of an opportunity of, of you know, a business that probably powers through. I think there are lots of tech businesses that can do this. You know, I think of a, a on my little small mid cap side, a Tyler, which has, you know, it's a software business that serves government. It tends to do just fine in economic drawdowns. And so I think not all tech is the same and you just have to be really careful. And it's helpful to have these older businesses that you can look how they did in the last great recession. All right, there's a lot more fast money to come. Here's what's coming up next. Elon's China warning, why he says everyone should be concerned. And it's not just Tesla caught in the middle, more on US Beijing tensions ahead. But first, Talk about a strong foundation. Home builder stocks keep climbing as demand stays strong despite rising rates. 
But can the buildup continue? You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. Home builders extending their rally today. DR Horton hitting a fresh all-time high, helping fuel gains in the S&P Home Builders ETF. The rally follows a mixed bag of data. Housing starts rose more than 2% in April, while mortgage demand dropped nearly 5% last week as rates move higher last week. So how can the builders keep climbing? Really yes. unusual circumstance here. It just speaks to the massive supply-demand imbalance, right, that we were obviously, we all recall so clearly, seems like yesterday, but it wasn't, great financial crisis, where there was so, so much supply, and it has been out of, supply has been out of whack with demand for a long, long time now, so that's how it can keep growing. It does seem odd, even with rates going up, and, you know, we're near highs, not quite at highs for mortgage rates, but still, um, and, and, the companies are not over levered like they were. They weren't over their skis in terms of how much land they had, how many, you know, spec buildings. So it's a different world. Yeah. I mean, sentiment is a 10 month high is just, you know, the numbers yesterday showed. Yeah. I mean, I, I think Karen hit the nail on the head, though. I mean, this is really about supply, demand and balance. You know, for all of those like myself who think that there's a, uh, a slowdown that will come over the coming six to 12 months. You look at the home builders and it's telling you the exact opposite. We have never been in a recession when the home builders are doing what they're doing now. So I think it's something to watch, but I also do think it's a bit of a unique technical situation out there. It's also interesting that Whirlpool, so if you build a home, you right. gotta put like a washing machine in it sure. and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, Whirlpool insane. is down from $185 a year ago. It's trading at 131. It's very near its 52 week lows. And I think that's really emblematic of like the stock market that we're in. There's just, for everything that like doesn't make sense that's positive in this scenario and everything there's that you just laid out about, there's also plenty of things that you could look at on there. So look at a Masco, you know, yeah. it's not, nowhere near its 52-week highs, that sort of thing. So it might be just a very unique dynamic. It might be also something about, you know, as investors look to rotate and they're thinking about what would be some cyclical areas of the market that are cheap that I can feel comfortable in because of the supply-demand dynamics. But uh, and Whirlpool's cheap, but, you know, it trades like death. I agree with Dan completely. I, I own like Whirlpool. It is cheap. It does yeah. trade like death. I do own it. <laughs> I think for all the reasons you said, uh, you know, they've done some interesting things that nobody really cares about. They've gotten rid of their European operations, their production facilities. They bought Insyncorator, which is a great little add on business for them. And yet no one seems to care at the moment. But it's all right. All right. Coming up, a winning trade. Shares of Wynn Resorts surging after an upgrade. Why the analyst says the best is yet to come for this casino operator. And Elon Musk weighing in on U.S.-China relations. David Faber's exclusive interview last night. Why he says everyone should be concerned right now. More on that when Fast Money returns. 
Welcome back to Fast Money Stocks. Rallying as debt ceiling negotiations seem to be trending in a positive direction. The Dow jumping more than 400 points. The S&P up more than a percent. The Nasdaq climbing nearly 1.3 percent. Shares of Wynn Resorts topping, uh, popping more than 5 percent after an upgrade to overweighted Barclays. Analysts there saying the best is yet to come. Macau fundamentals in Las Vegas resilience are keeping them bullish. Airlines also riding the bullish wave. The stocks all soaring today. United American, Delta, others with solid gains. And this goes down to your point of for every one thing that seems to be positive, there are all sorts of negatives. So we pointed to two positive things, airlines and casinos. Do you have the negative to, <laughs> to counter, you know, what can be made for a case of, of the consumer still spending on travel, et cetera? Yeah, no, I think Terry made a great point. I mean, like we saw that huge pull forward in goods, and, and now we're going to start seeing it. Well, we have been seeing it in services. But we're going to see that kind of slow down, and we're going to see the really difficult comparisons, I think, you know what I mean, for, to 2022 and some of those things. But when is a good example. Like, you know, again, a large part of this move since, I guess, the fall is predicated on China at some point would reopen. We know they're, um, you know, like how they're dependence on Macau here. Um, to me, I don't know. The China thing, I don't know how all it's going. You know, you know what I mean? Like, it doesn't seem like it's that great. So I don't know if I want to own a name like this just for uh, Macau, especially when we see how the Chinese had reacted to COVID and then how they might react to some sort of dust up with Taiwan. I mean, this would be uh, this would be ground zero in your portfolio for any sort of, uh, you know, invasion or anything that, uh, you know, China and Taiwan. So yeah. to me, it's not for me. All right. New concerns rising about the rising tensions between between China and Taiwan and China and the U.S. Elon Musk during his exclusive interview with David Faber saying he believes Beijing's hostility toward Taiwan needs to be taken more seriously. The official policy of China is uh, that um, Taiwan should be integrated. Mm-hmm. One does not need to read between the lines. One can simply read the lines. Do you think... That- <laughs> <laughs> so I, I think there's a certain, there's some inevitability to, to the situation. That would not be good for Tesla, conceivably, or for any, any company in the world, frankly. Yes, for any company in the world. I, I, I think most, almost no, no one realizes that uh, uh, the Chinese economy and, and the, global, the rest of the global economy are like conjoined twins. Uh, it, it would be like trying to separate conjoined twins. That, that's the severity of the situation. Um, and it's actually uh, worse for for a lot of other companies than it is for, for uh, Tesla. I mean, I'm not, sure, I'm not sure where you're going to get an iPhone, for example. Here now to weigh in, DeWardrick McNeil, senior policy analyst at Longview Global and a CNBC contributor. DeWardrick, great to have you with us. Uh, do you agree with Musk's take? Thanks for having me, Melissa. Listen, there were a set of built-in assumptions about the outcome of Taiwan's uh, future that I do not necessarily share. He is correct that it's China's policy and intent to integrate uh, Taiwan into the uh, People's Republic of China. Their capabilities, Melissa, are growing to do that. Their national level of confidence is growing about their ability to do that. But China's not the only actor here. Uh, There are other actors who have a say, the U.S., Taiwan specifically, uh, partners and allies, but also, uh, Melissa, global corporations have a say here. And I think it is time uh, for people to speak more clearly like Elon about the potential outcomes and make it clear that they're uncomfortable and start to vote with your feet. And by that, I mean, de-risk your supply chain, try and decrease your dependence on China and make it clear that the heightened geopolitical tensions and specifically the threat uh, to uh, Taiwan is a concern. So I don't think that this is imminent. 
Uh, but I do think it is fair that companies should heed what he says. It is their intent, but that doesn't mean it's going to happen, and it certainly doesn't mean that it's going to happen in the near term. It sounds like, though, you're saying to companies that they should pretend that it is going to happen, that in fact it is, and that you should pull out of China. Um, if, if it is China's intent to integrate and it is the U.S.'s policy to recognize Taiwan, then it is an inevitability that there will be conflict there. I mean, would you agree with that? Well, I, I want to make clear that U.S. policy is not to recognize Taiwan as an independent and sovereign state. So that is clear. With respect to China, it is indeed their policy uh, to uh, integrate Taiwan. And so, yes, I think companies should take China seriously. And by that, I mean, you know, don't navel gaze and whistle past the graveyard here. There is a possibility uh, that this would happen. It, and it may not be an invasion. Melissa, we've talked on the show here about several different possibilities to bring uh, Taiwan to heel. So it may not be an invasion. So I think businesses do need to start to take this serious, have a plan. And, you know, if I'm a board of some of these companies with exposure or an investor, you know, I'm going to start to really press for what this plan is to de-risk uh, your supply chain. And so, you know, I think if nothing else, the interview should really fire that shot over the bow that uh, you should take this seriously. To my point, it's not imminent, but you should use this time between now and when a scenario may be uh, one that China could execute to plan and, and, and get prepared for this. So I wouldn't sit back and wait. I would plan now. Order, um, what do you think of the precedent that was set by a lot of U.S. multinationals when Russia invaded Ukraine? Because I, you could see a very similar scenario. Let's say it was an invasion like you suggested, but maybe it's some sort of economic blockade or something like that. There'll be a lot of pressure on U.S. multinationals. And it's not just, you know, the sales, but it's also the production, as you mentioned, the supply chain. Like our companies, to what Elon said, we're kind of co-joined right here. And it's not an easy fix to kind of, you know, sever these ties, whether it be from a selling standpoint or a manufacturing standpoint. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, and he is as well about the conjoined nature of the global economy to China. But look, I think uh, Ukraine gave us an example of all of the possibilities, both on the hard side as well as on the economic sanctions and export control side. And so I think if I'm going to start to plan uh, for a potential outcome, I really take the Ukraine-Russia uh, example as my base case. But as you know, uh, Dan, this is it, this is nothing compared to that if China were to invade Taiwan or there was to be some sort of a, an economic uh, uh, sanctions against uh, China. So it's a complex scenario for sure. But businesses need to start now because I don't think it's imminent. I think there are too many problems at home in China that they have to deal with in the near term, nor do I think that their capabilities are such that they are assured to win an invasion scenario. But to me, it means use this time to figure out how you uh, untie this Gordian knot. That's my view of the situation. DeWardrick, always great to get your views. Thank you. Thank you, Melissa. DeWardrick McNeil. Uh, Karen, what's, what's your take? Because if companies have to start thinking about this, then investors have to start thinking about, and we've talked about this many times, mm -hmm. about what to re reward companies that are, in fact, already in the process of de-risking and what to discount companies mm -hmm. that are in there and not dealing with the issue, issue yet. Right. I think of like a Nike that has, ha has actually changed the mix of where they produce their goods. Um, and I think Japan, China is the third, uh, third now. Um, Vietnam, we don't know India. I think, you know, Apple, I can't think of some company that is more 
in the crosshairs, both from, you know, it dances as consumers there and as production there. I, I don't, that, that it should be, I don't know how much of a discount, but probably there should be a bigger discount on who knows when, if this is going to happen, but it's cataclysmic if it does. I, I think there's two ways to look at this. One is from a cyclical perspective and one is from a secular perspective. From a cyclical perspective, it almost never makes sense to invest based on politics. If you didn't invest in the U.S. equity market because you're worried about President Trump taking down you know, the, the U.S. economy, you missed out on a great bull run in equities. If you didn't invest in energy when President Biden came to office because you were worried about what he was going to do to oil companies, you missed out on one of the greatest runs in the energy sector. And so when we look out across the, the global landscape and we think about this, you know, I think a lot of um, the uncertainty that exists on a cyclical basis, a near-term basis, is going to already be priced into stocks. On a secular basis, though, I do think it means deglobalization likely continues along that path, which means you have uh, higher inflation and likely higher rates over the long term. Yeah, which brings you, Julie, to your onshoring trade, which you've always liked. Yeah, I, I think you continue to see more of that. And look, I mean, we already had a dress rehearsal for this in COVID, right, where we had major delayed supply chains. And I think everyone woke up to that. And now we have this conflict. You know, we had a military strategist in our office who said something akin to, you know, an invasion in Taiwan is inevitable, but the U.S. can delay it indefinitely, which sort of felt like a Taylor Swift lyric written by ChatGPT <laughs> to me. But I, I think, you know, I, I really I do think that it's something that everyone has to kind of keep front of mind a little bit almost like this debt ceiling where you want the you want the results to be clear coming up a healthy stock surge shares of Bausch health jumping after a drug patent ruling and the move as options traders piling in how they're playing the name next fast money's back in two Welcome back to Fast Money. Bausch Health soaring today after a Delaware district court ruled in favor of protecting its patent in Ziofran, a popular IBS drug. The news sending options traders into a frenzy. Kelly Intelligence CEO Kevin Kelly's got the action. Kevin. Hi, Melissa. Yeah, well, today there was a lot of activity uh, given the ruling, and we started out the day with about 2.3 times the amount of puts versus calls, but it really started coming down after the ruling. And that's because you saw a really big uh, block of calls look, look to appear to be sell, sold, about 10,000 of them, all the way out in July. It's the $8 calls capping uh, the upside, and they, they were sold towards the ask for about $0.77. Cents. So it looks like someone was selling a, a calls against uh, the shares they own. All right, Kevin, thanks. Kevin Kelly, Kelly Intelligence. Uh, Karen, you actually flagged this move. Yes, uh, so there's two. there were two potential catalysts for this stock, and I do own it. One of them is this. Uh, Zyfax, a very important drug, an irritable bowel and some other things, but that this is a big drug. This is a protection to 2029, which is really important. The other, the most crucial part is, can they spin Bausch & Lomb? That will unlock a huge amount of value. They're desperately trying to do it. They hope to come up with an answer within the year. For more options action, be sure to tune into the full show. That is Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Coming up, more Musk. The CEO is known for saying what is on his mind, even if it comes at a cost. What he said and how it could be costing him money, and maybe you too. Straight ahead. Stick around. We're Fast Money in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Earlier, we talked about Elon Musk's fears about China. Now we want to turn to his take on free speech. He told our David Faber he'll keep expressing his opinions on Twitter and saying what's on his mind, even if it comes at a cost. There's a scene in The Princess Bride, great movie, great movie. Um, where he confronts the person who killed his father. 
And he says, Offer me money. Offer me power. I don't care. So you just don't care. You want to share what you have to say. I'll say what I want to say, and if if if, uh, if the consequence of that is losing money, so be it. Investors didn't seem too rattled by those comments. May be very excited about a lower cost Tesla coming to market in the next uh, year or so. Tesla closing up more than 4% today, but while Musk is apparently open to taking a hit at his privately held Twitter, could speaking his mind interfere with his fiduciary duty to Tesla shareholders? If you are a shareholder, shouldn't you care what Elon Musk says if that is going to alienate customers? Dan. Well, first things first, let's hope he doesn't quit his day jobs, okay, because, um, you know, we saw him on Saturday Night Live. We saw his reading right there. Um, he's doing a great job in the other places. I'll, I'll just say this. Um, that's one of the big concerns. That's, if you're a Tesla shareholder, you, you know, you don't want him doing all that stuff. You don't want the extracurriculars that have the ability to kind of distract. He's had issues with the SEC about things that he's said on Twitter and the like and that sort of thing. So to me, I, listen, I was really surprised, um, like to each his own, if he was just the CEO of privately held Twitter, he can do whatever he wants. But he does have a fiduciary responsibility and he does have actually some restrictions about what he tweets about uh, relating to the company, um, given the SEC agreement that he has. Right. But he can tweet about I mean, that still leaves a whole vast amount of stuff that he can tweet about that could still alienate people out there, potential customers, potential investors, et cetera. Yes. I mean, it does seem somewhat irresponsible. I wouldn't be happy if I were a Tesla shareholder. However, if you are a Tesla shareholder and you haven't been awake and you haven't seen his SEC violations, his ridiculous tweets before he was involved with Twitter, remember the bankrupt sign, remember the, you know, uh, the LBO funding secured. The not filing a 13D. I mean, you you can't be surprised and expect to him for him to behave better. And maybe this is part of the lure of Elon Musk, right, Julie? You like this guy because he speaks his mind and he's a genius. I, I mean, maybe, sure. <laughs> I, I think the thing. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think the the real struggle with this is still what I kind of come to, which is. There is a lot of debt outstanding at Twitter, and in order for him to pay for it, it's not going to happen from Twitter's economics, which he's done a great job destroying. It's going to come from him selling shares. And, you know, we've seen him say, I'm not selling any more stock, and he sells more stock. So I think it's a concern for shareholders, not just from an operation standpoint. Up next, final trades. Time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Julie Beal. Uh, you know, TJ Maxx, it's a business that's got great traffic, and as a recovering retail analyst, that is good. Michael Kantopoulos. Uh, European equities, as uh, the U.S. tech uh, sector is going to fall in the back half, and long-term treasuries as growth declines. Karen Feinerman. Yeah, find myself agreeing with Dan. What? Yes, I know. Whirlpool, oh, I actually what? think it's too cheap here. Oh, I thought you meant on the Teslas. <laughs> Oh, we could go on and on. No, 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 no. All right. Well, and on minus snap, I think it's filling in that gap for earnings. All right. Thank you all for watching Fast Money. We'll see you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast Michael. It's great to have you here on the desk, Mike Stopless. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now.
All opinions expressed by the Fast Money participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Fast Money participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Fast Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Fast Money Disclaimer. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.